close enough that uh, the the family, the first family, was uh, put into a safe room and handed some weapons. Uh, did any of that get discussed, or um, if if you didn't cover any of of that real intense and maybe you know kind of guarded information, um, which suburbs did you visit in in your uh, survey of the recent conflict? Sure, Ryan. That's a great question. So yes, I actually did cut, try to cover the you know, those first hours, really, of the first day on February twenty fourth, twenty fifth of you know odd engagements inside of Kiev and in, in the Oblon district, you know, near the zoo, like downtown. Um, you know, they call them saboteur. Some people call them spetsnaz. Some people call them, like you said, FSB. So absolutely, to include photos of people captured um and tattoos of, of those people captured so i think that that was real um i didn't get into the specifics of like how how close they got to the president i think that the saboteurs or the infiltration and some stuff that was existing in key before the war even happened is real um, you know i was of course on the unclassified levels i didn't get you know high level but I saw enough to think that that, that was real in, in the re- reports of fighting to include even um, there's a, a video that I was concerned about in the Oblon district about the basically a Ukrainian vehicle that was hijacked, a military vehicle that runs over a car. And we talked to all that um, suburbs that I visited. So I started off in Bucha, which is unfortunate that they found dead bodies there really the, the next day that I visited. But so I was Bucha or Pin. Uh, uh, Mashun, uh, Demidev, Ivankiv, a little closer than Chernobyl. I wanted to get uh, so most of that on the east, you know, on the west side of the Dnipro, on the east side, since you know, Brovaria, uh, Skyburn, uh, and then all these villages on the on the east side of of the Dnipro that I didn't know were really how much they were occupied. So, you know, direct visits to all the occupied smaller the really villages of the Kiev Oblast that were occupied on the east side as they were coming down from, you know, whether you believe they were coming from, uh, not Kharkiv, but Sumy, or they started off in, in, in Russia and just made their way through there as they were trying to infiltrate through the, basically the country land into Kiev. And then you know, they hit the main E95. And those are some of the, the ambushes. And we talked to, you know, basically visited those exact sites and talked to some of the gunners and everything on those locations. But, uh, I think I covered it, almost every suburb in Kiev at one point, really um, trying to understand the sequencing of the battles from, you know, the first week, which is, you know, but then the occupation and the counterattacks of that. Uh, thank you very much. I think you covered really what I was, uh, more what I was getting towards, which was those uh, pre-positioned kind of hit squads, so to speak. I, I, didn't presume uh, they would have necessarily given you the VIP or the secret service tour of Zelensky's uh, personal detail squad. But yeah, I, I know that there were reports of uh, some of these embedded actors that, that were obviously in Ukraine before the war broke out that were uh, trying to make the most of their positioning. Uh, let's get to some hands while we've got John. Um, Colonel, while we've got Colonel Spencer, John, please go ahead. And then I want to get to Constantine. I know he's got uh, 
probably a ton of questions. Uh, thank you, Ryan. And uh, you kind of beat into the punch uh, because you more or less asked one of the things I was going to ask about regarding um, Russian uh, special operations units and irregular forces in uh, Kiev. Um, uh, Colonel Spencer, I'm not sure if you there was an article released um, by Times about a month or so ago. Um, regard it was based on some interviews they did with uh, some of Zelensky's staff um, regarding events in about the first week or so of the war. And I'm not sure if you've read this, um, but the impression that I got from that article was that the FSB or GRU hit squad that was sent after Zelensky, my understanding, if I'm remembering correctly, my understanding is that that team was able to make it into the presidential compound, but was then repelled you know, shortly after entry. Um, I'm not sure, you know, if you've seen anything to, you know, verify or refute that, but that's what the economist reported the same thing. Uh, that's, I believe where I heard it was an economist podcast. So I believe that's all been verified, but I, I don't know that they've probably given much opposite. I don't know that they've released much detail past that because he's obviously still residing in that area. So they they're not going to publish a whole bunch of information in a spot he's still being pr- protected and defended from. Um, the uh, so, Sorry, go ahead. So to answer the question is, I have not read it. Um, I did talk, but not about the, the specific Kilsad missions, right? Because we essentially believe that there are multiple objectives of these insider people already there, or somehow they, you know, they had to have been there just because of how fast on... 24th February, some of the stuff is starting to happen inside the city. So no, I didn't get, you know, I've really focused on the, really the military defense, although that of course is a part of the defense. I did not talk to uh, basically the intelligence services or anything like that. I really focused on like 72nd Mechanized Brigade, um, the territorial defenses, and then the volunteer organizations in the different communities. Did you get a tour of any of the Molotov uh, factories I did not, no. So you had to prioritize time. Uh, really, my main goal as you as I'm going to write the Battle of Kiev, main goal was talk to uh, military commanders and civilian fighters in those different suburbs and the actions that happened there so I could write kind of the timeline. As we know... Get the uh, interviews with the members are fresh. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and some of those people are already gone, right? So you're using some of the CNN interviews, like on Machoon, some of those, a lot of the people were just not there anymore. Either they're yep. deployed to the east or they're they're dead. Yep. Constantine, please go ahead. So I, I have uh, many questions, but um, I think you, you may have answered, but I have misunderstood it, but I will ask you anyway. Uh, how much, uh, uh, like in the force composition, how much impact do you think the regular forces, such as uh, uh, we know that 72nd Mechanized Brigade, it's one of most capable mechanized brigades of Ukrainian armed forces, how much effect did they play uh, in this and how much uh, territorial defense uh, uh, played in, in, in this uh, role in this? And like, how would you, uh, you know, rate, uh, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, for example, the, it I, there is a lot of uh, it's hard to explain. There is a lot of uh, back and forth right now in Ukrainian uh, military communities right now, saying that oh, it was like uh, 
territorial defense doing uh, most of the job, and some are saying, oh, the 72nd Mechanized Brigade that had, had, had actual armor, they suffered a lot of losses, they pulled back, they pushed back, and they uh, actually were the core of, of, of all the offensives. Um, and then some people say, like, no, it was territorial defense, you know, and there is a lot of um, holy wars, like we say, um, what is your uh, take on on this? With, without making him pick sides one or the other, I would say uh, I would just slightly reframe that and ask him what maybe his key takeaways were from uh, his most uh, recent travels. Without there are no sides. There are no sides. Yeah, I agree with you, Constantine. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to imply that there were, but no, um, I, I, Ryan, I understand that was the question. more in jest. It's it's a yeah, no. I understand the question fully, and I think it's a. I think it's very applicable as I did the tours. You know, seventy second mechanized brigade had responsibility of the key defense. Um, there's some questions on whether they were in position before the twenty fourth February. Um, so they say they were in position, but they didn't have equipment forward yet. And then basically after the invasion, they brought the equipment forward. I will say that the. The 72nd could not have been successful without the territorial defense. And now I know there's a big difference between kind of the territorial defense that was before the war, you know, the authorized amounts and trained versus the, what we call, what they called the community territorial defenses. So just like in Bucha, um, they're paid by the community, not by the, they're not the territorial defense under the TDU underneath the, the army. Every stop that I visited, Constantine, it was a an aspect of those volunteers getting to the recruitment center to get a weapon and then joining a lot of times, either joining um, a position with the 72nd, like like in Bavaria, along the you know, the main avenues of approach, they're they're joining those blocking positions, or places like Bucha or Pin where they're they're the first the first fighters that were there. Um, you know, then there's the argument of the hostile with the with the the National Guard, which most of them are gone, but the National Guard artillery that was there, and then of course the special operations that was a little bit of everywhere. Um, so I think of those two conversations, I would say, I mean, I would it's right down the middle, right? The 72nd could not have been successful in the battles of keep without all this additional combat power that is that was there, literally on February 24th with their weapon um, tr trying to help or joining or attacking Russian forces that were moving. Um, it, it, it is, there's no way the 72nd could have done what did what they did without all this additional combat power to immediately join them. Or in some places where it was only territorial defenses, whether it, um, in, in, while the 72nd, you know, got the intelligence to move. Um, and then you have, you know, the, the airborne coming from Zaporizhia. Um, then you have the 14th mechanized brigade coming in. Um, you know, so I'm not going to say no, absolutely not. You can't say it's just the 72nd did this. Um, I spent a lot of time, actually more time with the, the, the different territorial defenses in all the different communities. than I did at the land power headquarters with the 72nd um, because they, this was so much heavily of this regular, irregular volunteer, um, fighting. That's what the complexity of this battle really is, is that based on the speed and the time of it, um, it was so much of everyone 
and that's why it's going to be so hard to write the the report right because usually in my battle summaries that me and jason drew right we um and i you know i went with my friend colonel liam collins and, and that's what we said you know step one is usually to identify all the fighters on one side versus all the fighters on the other side well for the ukrainians i mean it's just this long list of people that just immediately took up arms or were in positions or moved to positions um and then that that was changing daily right so i, I it's a great question it was a huge part of the study to try to figure out like well Okay, in this exact position, you, what did you do versus, um, you know, talking to the 70 seconds, saying, okay, where were your positions and what you were doing? I, there, there was no, in my study, no single position that was just one unit or the other. It was such a, a or combined organization. Thank you. Right. Thank you for answering that. And can I ask one more? I'm sorry. If you... <laughs> Yep, Ukrainians and former Ukrainian service members get preference here. So, yeah, I wanted to go to sleep. So, and uh, but I didn't because I, I heard you join. So I will ask one more uh, and then go. Uh, so, uh, uh, how uh, there is like in the West, uh, there is a lot of uh, talk. Uh, uh, two things that are being said uh, and worse were uh, stated in in the media that it's all the javelins that are doing all the works and it's, it's the javelins and, and laws sent by Britain that are doing all the work and that's essentially what is, you know, changing things right now. Uh, after you have been in, in, in there, after you have seen the damage, uh, probably you've seen, you know, when you understand that there's artillery working on the right, you see the, uh, the uh, you know, underground, you see the impact, uh, how much impact of, of the artillery shelf is there. And right now, uh, like, I'm just trying to... Uh, to get in context, like how you would understand, uh, and uh, 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 for everyone, uh, what wh what would you say? Like, I I understand that javelins and all laws and laws they play the critical part in it, uh, but uh, how would you like create the damage uh, done to the uh, to those forces? Uh, uh, to Russian forces uh, in terms of uh, like. What was what was the damage deal in equipment that 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 uh, was though was that mostly uh, javelins and and laws or it was fifty fifty or it was artillery mostly or it was um, mechanized units or it was uh, you know I don't know some say that it's uh, just small arms. Yeah, that's a great question. As, as um... You know, it, it was so different in different locations, right? So um, I will say I, I heard a lot of about RPGs more than I did um, javelins. As a matter of fact, a really interesting story that will be a part of the, the feedback in their pin, um, which is probably the heaviest urban fighting that was happened in the Battle of Kiev. There was no, the the some of the 72nd said that the ranges were too, just too close so the javelins weren't as much help, right? Because the javelins have a minimum arm range um, the in-laws were more helpful, but then um, lots of talk of RPGs and like the, you know, that street that we've all seen that I was uh, in her, her pin slash butcher, you know, between the gap across the bridge, the street that's just lined with vehicles. I mean, that was a little bit of everything, right? With lots of RPGs. Um, the small arms is an interesting question, right? You, um, I, I, so, you know, of course, 
we got to break this battle up from like really the first week, the occupation and then the um, counterattacks, right? And the counterattacks is where I see more artillery, right? Especially as, as we started to move up towards Ivankiv uh, in the heavy use of Ukrainian artillery to hit the Russians trying to escape. Uh, and I, but TB2, multiple locations too, where TB2s were strategically used as clearly key, they, Ukrainian um, staff prioritized the Battle of Kiev, and you could see there a bunch of locations we travel where TB2 strikes on you know, key moments in time. Um, heights. And you know, on the eastern side, there was javelin use, but I wouldn't say no, absolutely, I would not say, and maybe that was a misconception that I had on how much that was a tipping point to Ukrainians' defense. In Kiev, I wouldn't say that so much as. You know, the number one weapon I would say was the key factor was the territorial defenses and the volunteers, um, because I heard a lot more talk about RPGs than I did javelins. In law was mentioned a lot, especially for the seventy second, because of the you know because it, it can fire at a closer range, um, more direct fire. So it's an interesting question, of course. And then artillery used, you know, on day one. Um, that's really what the the Fourth National Guard had. Only thing it really had when it pulled back from Hostomel was to basically eliminate the VDV with artillery. So, which, and this is the problem when you really write a battle study, um, which you try to take the key moments, right? So the key moments, whether that's the the attack of the VDV at Hostomel with artillery, right? The Fourth, the, the National Guard's artillery, which was key a key moment, um, and to make the airfield not usable so you know ukrainian artillery was the king of the battle at that moment um and then you, you go to other locations like in the gap between buchan or, or pin that some key firefighters are taking out the first vehicle with an in-law um allowing for the other hundred to start to get picked off with artillery um rpgs and you know all of that so it, it's a really hard question to answer to be honest i can't I will say I didn't see much javelin, um, and I saw a real big preponderance of artillery, RPG, and then in law. Thank you, thank you for addressing that, and I really appreciate that uh, the fact that you have been there uh, for for me as a Ukrainian. You know, I don't have I, I don't have a legal right to leave uh, the United States. I will not be able to come back right now because I'm waiting for my status to be changed. Um, and it's such a pleasure to, you know, to have actual uh, uh, expert like you uh, go there and see those things. So I really appreciate your uh, your answers, and uh, uh, I will go to sleep right now. And just to, you know, to give you a next uh, direction, uh, I, and I will not listen to that. But I will go to sleep. Um, you, uh, you probably heard about the. And you've been there about the flooding of the of the dam uh, near the Irpin, uh, yeah. just, you know, uh And you've been there. This is this is a fascinating thing thing for me because there was a lot of questions: who did it, us or them? And the problem. No, you no, have, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, that was that was a very important for us to go up to see that, and it was it was um, not just the Irpin, right? It was all three rivers. It was. I don't, the names, I, I wrote down the names, um, how key that was. That was a deliberate Ukrainian operation. I mean, controlling the flow of waters. Um, so flooding the Irpin and the other two rivers, the two rivers that go basically west 
um, all three of them flooded very deliberately, very controlled. Um, and I really appreciate that, Constantine. It means a lot for me to have been able to visit. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much and have a good night. And uh, hope you can add a lot of discussion over here. Bye. Thank you. Night. Um, I want to go to bed next and I'm going to squeeze in another question just because I have co-host privileges right this second. What, if anything, did you learn about the shoot down of those two Aleutian? Say again, Ryan, I was... Uh, the, the two Aleutian aircraft that had all the paratroopers in them that were shot down over Kiev in the opening days or opening nights, rather. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, so in, it's in the south, so Basel Kiev. Um, you know, really tried to dig in this night. You know, Malcolm, that I, I met up with Malcolm Nance, and he, that was one of his uh, big questions as well. To be honest, I don't, so it confirmed one of them was shot down, right? Um, pretty much confirmed in Vassal Kiev, one of them was shot down. Unconfirmed, so kind of various opinions on what those, were they actually trying to do an air, airborne drop, like paratrooper, like me in 2003, um, on one of the airfields is questionable. Um, I talked to a Ukrainian fighter who had shown up to the Vassal Kiev the next morning right and it's fighting in that location so were the vdv helicoptered in um did they really the, our opinion at the end of all the conversation is that they did not drop paratroopers into ukraine you know from from a cargo plane uh, the second one nobody really knows is that the recounting of the first i couldn't find conclusive evidence that it was two il New cargo, one confirmed shot down. Um, can't confirm if there are 200 people inside of it. Um, did it land, drop, but there is fighting that's happening there. Um, it's one of the gaps. So really what we have to summarize in that first day, 24 February, that there were multiple VDV attempts on multiple airfields. So you have um, the other one in the Southeast as well that received fire, um, that multiple of the airfields were attempting to be to get VDV forces into them in Hostomel was just the one that was the most popular, the one that most people know about. Um, so to answer it, I can't confirm two, I can confirm one. Can't confirm, I highly doubt the rumor that anybody was dropped from an airplane onto the airfield. Yeah, I, I never heard that anybody actually was dropped. I, As I understood it in those initial days, they shot down one illusion there was video of it multiple yep, angles yep. um then i i had heard that there was a second one shot down yep. either that same night or the next night but no. it, the contents yeah, of it was was never confirmed it was just speculative that they were trying to drop paratroopers in around kiev or around right. that uh airport yeah, yeah nobody's and nobody has a video of the second one so nobody i couldn't confirm with uh, anybody okay um, so it, it was the, just rumors and speculation probably floating off the first the story of the first shoot down right I Under think so. uh ben go ahead i'm don't want to hog all the time here we've got a bunch of hands thanks for that. uh thanks a lot uh good day uh colonel i have a quick question about uh, the general picture uh how would you summarize the the battle itself was it uh the russians who had absolutely no chance to take keith and uh, they're they're tripped over their own um, 
their own shoelaces or was it had all the chances to take Kiev and the um, Ukrainian forces uh, snapped uh, victory from the jaws of defeat? Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, if you would ask me before the visit, I would have said that the I actually was saying on TV that the Russians had a good plan um, that just failed to execute it. Now, after having visited every suburb really involved, um, I think the Ukrainians might have paid a higher price if the uh, Russians wouldn't have made some mistakes. But I honestly, now having visited, think that the Russians had no chance to get um, to to take Kiev or to get to the center, take the government building. The resistance of the Ukrainian people was just too high. Um, and, and the complexity of the urban terrain of Kyiv, the, the Russians didn't bring enough, even if they would have performed well, uh, not been surprised a few times, just didn't nearly have the force structure or the force numbers, force ratio they would have need having faced the resistance. I mean, they have pictures of, you know, kind of the weapons being handed out to civilians, like in her pen and things like that. But every story that I heard was just basically 24 February, recognized they're coming in. And then all these volunteers, most of them veterans of after 2014, colonels, generals going to the recruitment centers, grabbing a weapon, if not having their own weapons, which many of the senior commanders that are from, you know, retired or um, that we'll call veterans, getting their weapons and moving to the sounds of the guns. I think they, I honestly now think they, the Russians had no chance. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Um, sorry, I had my mic unmute covered up. Um, that was a great question, Ben. Thank you. Uh, let's go to Gurney and then Dr. Paul. Hey, thanks, Colonel Spencer. This is fantastic to hear from you. And and I'm sure uh, we're all eagerly awaiting, uh, you know, reading reading some of your reports, whether it's 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 preliminary or final. Um, uh, my, my question is on the mechanics uh, of it and, and sort of what you saw um, and, and how you did it. Did did you make a list of, of questions and sites you wanted to go see in advance? Um, and then when you got on the ground, uh, tried to execute that? And, and did you um, stumble onto new things that, that you didn't know about ahead of time? So that's my first one. And then the second one follow on is just uh, in, in your travels around there, aside, you've mentioned the, um, you know, uh, interviews with people that are on the ground and collecting stuff. Could you talk about uh, what the primary evidence uh, looks like, whether it's infrastructure or some things? Has it changed uh, much from February? Has it degraded or is it, you know, very similar? How, was that easy to discern for you? If you could just speak to that aspect of it, I'd, I'd appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Gurney, uh, the, there's a lot there. Um, yes, I had a plan. Um, you know, hosted by through. I mean, to be less, less without revealing who, um, I could not have conducted this visit without the Walter Report, without key individuals that I've met through this space. Um, so fully hosted, fully planned trip, um, coordinated from every aspect, from getting across the border, getting from the border, um, all of it fully coordinated with key, of course, key moments that, um, key moments of the battle that I wanted to see, right? So, you know, Bucha, Erpin, Hostamel, um, Bavari, uh, Skyburn, like of the ones that I knew, right? So did all the preliminary research um, with questions of, 
which bridges were blown, when were they blown, when were the were you in position on February twenty fourth? If not, when did you get in position? So long list of questions based on who we were going to meet with from the seventy second mechanized brigade brigades staff to individual territorial defense commanders in the different locations. Um, so having said that, surprises really the the biggest surprises just because I wasn't maybe I wasn't tracking it enough was the complexity of the East Dnipro fighting. Um, and, and it's it's a very, it really opens up, the terrain does, on the eastern side of Kiev, the farmland. So, you know, there's this weird aspect, and this is why I traveled the battles, right? Why I went to Nagorno-Karabakh is, you know, I can study it through videos, like all of us, and I can look at the maps, and I can look at Google Earth, and it doesn't give you a sense of, like, the fact that Mashun which is a pivotal battle in the Russians finding a way around the flooding, a way around the bridges being dropped, trying to cross their pin, they platooned, that it's like, you know, it's in key, but it's really in this national forest. So it's like, literally like the Herkin forest to get in the machine and then it's surrounded by the woods. Um, so those aspects of the terrain were a huge surprise to me especially in the east right so i, I knew of course that of the fighting you know whether you, you what i thought it was from you know forces coming down from the north or they're coming out of the east of course understanding that they had to have come through the farmlands they tried to infiltrate to the into key but being out there and visiting the villages which they occupied or what we call a patrol base in the farmlands of key awaiting further and then being struck by TB2s or artillery's way out there. That aspect of the fight, I think I missed as I was studying the Battle of Kiev is trying to focus too much on the city. And it was this, you know, this big um, defense in depth with area denial, uh, battle positions, uh, key terrain, things like that, that I, I might've missed had I not visited. And that's the aspect that, that will go into the report. And then lastly, the, this aspect of, in the complexity, I, mean, I can imagine as a former soldier myself, as being in a battle position, you know, in, in that battle position is made up of, you know, what we call regular army. It's made in territorial defense. And then it's just this large amount of volunteers with weapons saying, I'm ready. I'm ready to help. And then command and controlling that and then receiving the information. And uh, so many reports of intelligence coming from civilians in so many different ways, but you're really fighting with civilians. Although once they take up arms, they're a combatant. But if, if you were there protecting your own land and, and understand you had this giant fighting formation in this position of such great variety of fighters and some of them with years of experience, they're just not a part of the unit at the moment. Um, that, that's going to be really hard to kind of to write out how that played into effect in all the battles that we've all heard of. It just wasn't. Okay, that was territorial defense. That was that was a mechanized brigades element there. Uh, it's so the complexity of it. I mean, it's insane. Yeah, uh, I've said a couple of times. Any any time you think you know what's going on in Ukraine, just remember that you're looking at at this through a Twitter account. Probably if you're here on the Walter Report, and that's like looking at a football field through a drinking straw. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I, you know, I. I I've done this enough to, to know what to look for and, 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 you know, combine so many different 
aspects of reporting. But th this battle specifically, unlike any other ones that I've been a part of or studied, um, this complex mixing of forces was unique. Yeah, um, I look forward to reading your report. I, uh, let's go to Dr. Paul. There's lots of people with yeah. lots of questions. You guys, you guys are already pressuring me. I feel the pressure. I haven't even made it back yet. Like to get to writing, right? Get it out. Yeah, get to work. What are you doing here? <laughs> exactly. Hey, hey, Colonel. Awesome stuff. Really glad to hear you went for all of us, it feels like. Um, and glad to hear you're back in Poland, as I'm sure your family is as well. Um, I was happy to hear that you you were focused on the Territorial Defense Forces. And that's like, I really want to know, because it's a potential like major force multiplier for the Ukrainians. The longer the conflict goes, the better these forces become i don't know that that's my assumption and i want to kind of hear your perspective on what was that journey for that 18 or 20 year old boy or girl who stood up with arms and was like yeah i'm gonna fight what was their journey from that moment and like how did they mature evolve into something more professional where do where do they stand today and what are the lessons learned not just for the ukrainians but for i guess nato countries or you know, European countries and potentially even the U.S. of like how how they were ill prepared they were and how they evolved and created a more professional and uh, effective fighting force. And are they an effective fighting force? So thanks so much. Yeah, it's a great and complex question, Dr. Paul. So thanks. Um, yeah, my family's much more at ease, um, even though the crazy pictures I was sending home of, you know, when a Ukrainian says, follow me and, and it's past a sign that says minefield, you get a little nervous. But uh, so it's hard to answer the exact question, right? Um, because I'm in Kyiv, right? So I'm, I'm studying a, a battle that, that was won while they're still at war and having to ship forces from there to the in different locations to include the, you know, the primary commander that I wanted to talk to, the overall general of the defense was, you know, not there at the moment um, because of the fight, right? So there was this complex aspect of who I was talking to at the moment. Like, so you're a, a, a contracted territorial defense guy at the moment, but on February 24, it wasn't right. So February 24th, it was just community defense. Uh, and then as the war went on, now he's a part of the main uh, or people that were territorial defense. Now he's regular army. Now he's special forces. So that aspect of this transition from, um, territorial defense to regular army to special forces or whatever to the various units we met you know i met an airborne guy who's now head of head of something in the 72nd you know that 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 rapid change as they are growing and evolving training formations quickly was a very strong aspect of the visit um and i spent a lot of time to be honest with also the the community defense forces which are um territorial defense but their community territorial defenses. So like the city of Bucha has their own now, um, which was always part of a plan. So the question about what the lesson for other countries is, is that Ukraine had a plan for armed resistance like many other countries, but it was much more, I think, ready. Um, and arguably, you could argue more ready as a fighting function than the actual defense, military defense was. So these recruitment stations, in every village that you go to, um, to sign, say, I'm, I'm a part of your fighting formation, you get handed the weapon, magazines, um, 
couldn't figure out, I don't think they were handed uniforms, but say, okay, now you're part of the Bucha territory defense. Um, and I got to visit those guys who were training, who were training as we were visiting. You got to spend some time with them, make recommendations, you know, um, you know, make sure they, they've seen my book. Uh, and and I, I talked to the publisher about getting more of the book out there. So I just saw so much need and they're prioritizing getting it to the army. So I think they're absolutely evolving. They're absolutely getting stronger. Um, because now you have, like I said, this evolution of fighters that were not in the army before, but now are in the army um, or not a part of the terror defense unit, which is now authorized to be the, the main TDUs. They signed a law saying that the TDU could be moved outside of their own territory. Um, so they're not saying they're gone, but they're, they're now this evolution and upgrade, you know, as they get more training, as they get more um, signing the contract, they get moved up, right? But there's always somebody, and we saw like a new new batch of recruits in the territory of community defense is being trained. So, but the key lesson here, and it's probably one of the smaller articles we'll write, is that they had this armed defense aspect that worked. Um, that took a lot of planning. It took resources too. I mean, I was really... I mean, I knew about the kind of handouts of weapons and key, but some of that was also the fact that they already had like armories in the communities for this moment and then hand them out to volunteers that would come to the recruitment station and then go out and either move to the sound of their guns or move to battle positions, blocking positions in the villages, which makes this porcupine that I discussed before, but I didn't really understand the, the planning that happened really probably post-2014 to make sure that that actually worked. Um, so I think that will be a huge aspect. Even talking to people here in Poland, um, there is this, you know, many of the Eastern European countries have this concept of total resistance, armed resistance, um, different names for it, but I don't know if they have the resources applied to it or it's just a plan that they'll enact when, if, and hopefully never invaded. Uh, Ukraine had a plan, a resource plan and was ready to be honest. Fascinating stuff. Thanks so much. And just a quick clarifying question. I think I heard you say uh, you went to Hostomel. And if so, you know, there were some Russian propaganda photos and when they were in control of it with like, you know, 24 Russian snipers out there that eventually got liquidated. I'm curious if you heard anything of what happened there to how did that happen? What role were they being used for? Any details on that? If not, move on to the next question, please. Thanks. Yeah. So Ryan, I only got about five more minutes, and I got to um, start making my way to my my, my plane. Um, so I wish I would have had more time at Hostomel. So they're doing a lot of work there, so I couldn't get inside the airfield. Um, I did talk to some people, part of the operations, depending on what phase of the operation you're talking about. I did not get into the specifics of liquidating outside of the first two days, right? So the really the, the elimination of the BDV but once the armor starts showing up, so I, you know, I didn't really understand the complexity of the hostile fight of this, you know, first um, drop of the VDV and then the, the fourth National Guard who was already in hostile area, although most of them were already were deployed. Um, the elements that were there attacking and then more soft and other Ukrainian forces being a part of that first 24 hours. 48 hours before the rest of the convoys coming out of, which was interesting for me, not just the Chernobyl route, but multiple um, north-south running routes. They are, as they got those 
vehicles and forces in, the Ukrainians had to pull back and pretty much that's the end of the Hasimov fight until the counterattacks uh, outside of, like Constantine was saying, artillery and things like that. Um, I think if something was eliminated in Hasimov post the first 24 hours, 48 hours, when there was a, there was a pretty deliberate uh, special forces raid um, that it was done by aerial strike. Thanks, Colonel. Awesome. Safe trip. Thanks, Dr. Paul. So, Ryan, I can take one more, and I'm going to cut. Perfect. No, thank you very much for your time. Um, let's go, um, Brian. Yeah, thanks so much. John, uh, John Spencer, I uh, always appreciate your input and glad I got under the wire here. I had a question for you about the Predator drones that we, uh, when I say we, the United States mothballed several years ago. Um, did we just scrap those? I'm just wondering why we haven't sent some of those that might have been mothballed six, seven, eight years ago over to Ukraine. I, I know they're buying TB2s from Erdogan's son-in-law over in Turkey, but as a full-blown, I know there's switchblades and various other drones that have gone over and recently another um, quote-unquote full-scale drone that can fire Hellfire missiles uh, within the last month or so. But I was just wondering what the fate of the, the Predator was, if you had any insight on that, and I appreciate it. He's hey, not thanks, Brian. Guy. I'm not a Predator guy. Uh, I will say that, uh, you know, that it was a political decision in the beginning, not a resource decision on Predator, Reaper, and now we've heard that the Gray Eagle, um, which does, you can mount uh, um, the Hellfire missiles, which is one of the primary drone um, strike elements you know the the arming of, of some some of our most advanced drones um we were not politically ready to give ukraine those i think that we should have in the beginning and it would have saved a lot of lives while the the tb2 Bakhtar, which is so popular and was a, on a, a big part of the second battle of nagorno-karabakh uh, as well um, i can't answer the mothball predators but i know it was a political decision not to give um, those long-range drone striking capabilities to ukraine up to this point there was a lot of news the last couple of weeks about gray eagle which is a you know similar to the predator and the reaper different variations different sizes um whether that comes with the strike capability or not i i'm, I'm not the, the expert on that like ryan said uh, i won't keep you any longer thank you very much for your time uh, Nick, if you want to squeeze one in and John has the time for it, great. John, if you want to sign off and you've got to get to your plane, please feel free. Yeah, I, I'm out. Uh, I'll, I'll try to join back in. No, thank you very much. We appreciate all your time. I look forward to hearing from you. Safe travels. Um, thanks again. Uh, that was great. Um, Nick, sorry I didn't get you squeezed in in time. Um it's a, that's fine, buddy. Um, I it's hardly time sensitive. He's going to be back, and I, I can, yeah. I can ask him my question uh, uh, when he's back. It's fine. He's well, extremely generous with his time, and I'm he, very grateful for that. He's, I'm sure. he's fabulous. And the ironic thing is that um, that literally minutes before he uh, uh, reappeared in our space, I had I read his tweet about leaving Kiev uh, at a loss for words, and thankfully. Between the time he tweeted it and the time he reemerged, he he regained his capacity for words because that was great. All of it was great, and uh, and my question, he might, he, for all I know, he, he may be a, it may have been a 
question you couldn't answer. May I uh, therefore take uh, this opportunity to make a quick comment about our pre-Colonel Spencer uh, topic uh, as a coda? I don't want to reopen it. I just want to yeah, sure. put a coda on it. Um, I wanted to say that um, regarding the inevitable dozens of post-mortems on um, pre-war aid to Ukraine, which will come from ivory towers and news slash editorial rooms and think tanks from every angle of the political spectrum. Um, no matter how they apportion the various uh, uh, pie slices of blame, every last one of them will be uh, operating from the uh, smug 2020 vision of hindsight. And I think we all really ought to take that into account. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that the people who were making the decisions pre-war, who were, you know, buried in uh, COVID and economic stuff, couldn't possibly foresee. And w- I think we just ought to all ought to understand that that there will be many smug opinions, and 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 there'll be a lot of uh, validity to some of the points, and 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 the validity of some of the points isn't going to make every point they make valid. It's going to mean some of their points are valid. And and we ought to take it as an aggregate. And and that's all I, I wanted to say. And, and thanks, everybody. Um, yep. Um, and I'm reminded of, uh, I believe, Teddy Roosevelt's words where he said, uh, complaining without proposing a solution is, uh, damn it, I've, I've already screwed up the quote. It's, uh, no, I'm going to Google it. And, and you, you've already... I liked how it started. I'm going to figure, I'm going to find out how it finishes that Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt is uh, immensely quotable. I'm sure he's in Google quotes or I I think, I think he said complaining without proposing a solution is just called whining. (laughs) Sorry for laughing so loud. Thanks everybody. That was great. Look it up. It's a good one. Um, It's very apropos. Uh, Yeah. Hindsight's 2020. We can all, I'm sure quarterback this thing all day long. Um, People did everything they could to avert a war here. We've done it for years. And um, Ukraine and NATO members didn't choose to go to war here. They tried to avert one. And inevitably, some guy who has more power than sense decided to invade a country and and enable a genocide. And here we are. So we'll be here until it's over. Um, if you're a new listener to the Walter Report, welcome. We just had Colonel John Spencer join us. Apparently, uh, he was lucky enough to go and visit Ukraine and do a uh, investigation for um, himself and the benefit of others on the Battle of Kiev. Um, language, I see you are in the listener gallery. I guess you, I don't know if you got here in time for that Um but we just had a, a pretty good conversation with uh, Colonel Spencer. Um, and sorry, I, I think it's hard to follow that one up. I had no idea he was in Ukraine. Um, so um, you can ask a question, make a comment. Um, we have a pretty slim speaker panel here at the moment. I, I don't mean to downplay any of you guys. You all are wonderful contributors. Uh, firmer, you have joined the panel and not asked a question, um, feel free. Uh, if you're not familiar with how we do things around here, you hit that little heart button next to the blue circle on the bottom right, and there's a hand on the far right hand of the emojis. You can raise your hand and ask a question, just like Ben did. 
Ben, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> thanks a lot. Um, the 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 answers from Carlos Vances were indeed pretty amazing. Um, I think we can all be very, very thankful to have him as well as a number of uh, specialists of his caliber uh, talking to us on such a regular basis. So thank to him, thank to the space. Um, I'm reading the European press at the moment, uh, and I wanted to to share a couple of informations with you, which I guess uh, could be a, some, some way to fill time. Um, the French uh, economics newspaper, uh, Les Echo, is sharing a study made by the uh, the British, um, what do you call that, research center, Handley and Partners, that says that um, this year, 15,000 million, uh, sorry, 15,000 millionaires, Russian millionaires, 15,000 of them, are likely to uh, leave their country. Uh, that's above 15% of the people with this sort of worth. And um, that gives us an idea of the of the brain drain that is currently um, affecting the Russian economy and uh, the country as a whole. Um, considering that uh, a sizable portion, portion of the millionaires are probably not able to leave the country anyway because they're not allowed to travel abroad. Uh, that's an amazing figure, and um, um, that's a way to, to take heart in this difficult moment. Um, Ryan, are you a millionaire in dollars? Am I what? A, mil Am I a millionaire in dollars? Like, can you give us insight from the... No, I'm, I'm not a millionaire yet. Okay, okay. We're working on it. We're working on it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not on that axle level. I, I don't have an, an acreage or uh, any massive lands to attend to. Uh, oh, coming. I'm just a regular guy. <laughs> when you're talking about Excel, I heard that it was um, setting up a, a feudal levy uh, on his land uh, to help Ukraine. So he's getting his peasants together and uh, they're going to march from uh, from the cold lands of Estonia. But yeah, that's for the moment, we don't have a confirmation. I, I don't want to talk about it. Um, well, I, I heard the or I read the story about the uh, billionaire grain dealer that lives in Ukraine, who had uh, pretty much self-funded his own uh, defensive fighting force, and they're kind of like an independent operational unit, but they take orders from the Ukrainian military. Um, so maybe Axel will come out of retirement and uh, you know kind of fund his own ragtag bunch of Germans. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what his capabilities are. He's a Luftwaffe guy. Maybe he can come in with, with this air force that everybody thinks. Uh, oh, yeah. The the, Bla the Baltic Flying Tigers. That's yeah, on. There's he, a... he can resurrect the Baltic Flying Tigers. There we go. Uh, another... Okay, yeah. Uh, also, on, watch... on a more serious note, we're really lucky to have people like Colonel Spencer join us from time to time. Um you know, uh, he, that guy's a wealth of information and people pay good money to learn from him. The United States government pays good money to teach for him to teach West Point people and and people like CJ. Um, so it's a privilege to have him join us in this space and support Maria aid. And I'm going to plug Maria aid again real quick because uh, I know Colonel Spencer has done that in some of his uh, engagements, at least I've I've heard it in the background when he does interviews on CNN or or the BBC. 
And uh, for that, I'm very thankful. Maria Aid is a nonprofit org that was set up by uh, people like Colonel Melanie Lake and uh, uh, some other folks that Yehuda's worked with in the Canadian military. It's a 100% nonprofit organization. They spend no money on overhead. They don't pay anybody. They don't have any paid secretaries. Their website was donated. Uh, any money that you would be able to contribute to Maria Aid is spent towards non-lethal military equipment or medical supplies like tourniquets and uh, bandages and things that can save people. Um, if you go to the Maria Aid website, you can get a lot better visual description of what exactly it is they do, but more or less they gather up exactly what uh, people inside Ukraine communicate that they need, and people like Colonel Melanie Lake have connections to people in the Ukrainian military and, and the health ministry, so they know exactly, they have their finger on the pulse, so they know what's needed and they can fill gaps uh, as a nonprofit that, you know, the the governments can't always uh, jump in and, and take care of. And they send stuff over in shipping container quantities they have a great team of professionals in procurement and uh, all other facets of nonprofit work. They've got this thing up and off the ground in a couple of months. Uh, that's lightning speed to get nonprofit certification in Canada. So uh, they're not resting on their laurels and they put every dollar that's donated to them to an excellent use. They don't have any pizza parties, as Yehuda likes to say. It's it's an all-volunteer effort. There's no office space leased. Um, they don't pay for warehousing because that's donated. So if you ever wanted to give your money to a cause and know that every dollar you're donating is actually going to the intended purpose, Maria Aid is uh, the way to go. I've donated to them personally, so I wouldn't ask somebody to donate to something I hadn't committed my own personal money too, and Maria Aid is the way to go. Um, with that, I'll go back to you, Ben. I think I cut you off. No, you never cut me off. You just said something more interesting. Uh, that's that's called natural selection. Um, yeah, another another bit of information I quite liked uh, from Corriere della Sera, the Italian newspaper. Apparently, um, the, the Russian spokesperson, uh, Peskov, you know him, I guess, uh, has crucial information for us. Uh, it's the fact that uh, Russia is a large country. Yeah. Uh, and, and what he means by that is that it's such a large country. They have everything they need. Thank you very much. The sanctions aren't working. So that's, that's what we, that's what is, that's the message he's trying to, to pass on. And as, um, uh, Domin, who's always right, uh, once remarked, um the if if they're if they're if the sanctions are so not working, why do they keep asking for them to be um and actually there's in the same newspaper, Cordillera Sera, there's um the value advisor who's making that very point. He lives in exile in Italy. Um and he says that if there's one thing that is working and that is quizzing the the Russian uh, government at the moment, it's the, it's the sanctions. Okay, I've got a lot more to say about the sanctions, but um, someone, no, someone dropped. Okay, so I'll move on. Uh, yesterday, there was um, 
fantastic piece in uh, Vox, which well, Vox is something else, but it, it, it is also uh, a website that uh, puts together a number of short takes by economists. Uh, it's more, it's on my uh, it's on my my Twitter timeline. So if you want to have a look, and this one was by Mark Harrison, uh, who is an absolutely brilliant uh, historian of the Russian economy. He literally wrote the books. Um, literally wrote the books on uh, on what happened to the Russian economy before the so the, the Soviet Revolution and after, uh, all the way to the 70s. He's, uh, he's a treasurer of a human 